I live in a cul-de-sac, and every house in the cul-de-sac more or less looks the same. Everybody has a front-attached garage, everybody has a bonus room on, on top of the garage, and in about mid-October, we all drive our cars into the garage, close our garage door, and we don't see each other until the following spring, because that's how Canadians do winter. Now, for some of us, we think, well, what if we accidentally left the window open? And I don't want to do that. I leave home in the dark. I come home from work in the dark. And I have three little kids. And you don't want to see what happens in my house with windows open and everything viewing. But sometimes it happens. And I think we go home, and it's uh, dark outside. But people leave their lights on. And we think we're like a bug drawn to what's happening in that living room. Last night I came home at about six o'clock and I saw the Oilers smashing the Canadians. We celebrate with this. That's where you're supposed to laugh or cheer or something, just so you guys know in advance. We look around and we see people uh, having parties and we think, what's going on? What's happening there? We get this glimpse into what's happening in their life. If you look at the screen behind me, we have these three windows that are taking part. And it's like this glimpse into the kingdom. We, we hear this phrase regularly when we read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But we're trying to understand what does that mean? And you look to the one picture and you see a manger and you think that is our king. The son of God who came down to the world to save us from our sins. We look in the middle picture and we see that king who's eventually going to sit on that throne where he's seated right now and we celebrate that we worship the king of the entire world and all that is in it and we are grateful for what's gonna happen over these next few weeks as we talk about the anticipation of the coming king. We look at that final window and we see a Christmas tree and we think that looks nice, but it's almost like it's competing where the presence that we have and things that we're doing can sometimes compete against what God wants to do. A number of months ago, I was taking a class for school on church history. And the unit that fascinated me the most was the unit on the Renaissance. And I'm not sure how much you know about the Renaissance or what took place, but most people believe it was started by an Italian by the name of Lorenzo Medici. And Lorenzo Medici um, was a wealthy man, not Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos wealthy, but had a lot of money. And he be believed passionately that all of Italy should be able to see the beauty of the arts. And so he became this wealthy patron who hired artists, who hired sculptors, who hired philosophers, including Michelangelo himself. And he said, I want you to create incredible art. I want you to travel. I want you to think. I want you to learn. I want you to understand what beauty and art and majesty looks like. But I don't want you to do it for me. I want you to do it for all of Italy. This next piece is beautiful. The leaders of the Renaissance wanted to move away from private opulence and towards public opulence. So the average person could enjoy the beauty of the arts. It's a testament that today, 500 years later, Venice and Florence are still two of the most beautiful cities in the entire world. The leaders of the Renaissance wanted people to catch a glimpse of the majesty, the beauty, and what's available for all of human flourishing. It was bringing light out of the medieval darkness. 2,000 years ago, Jesus did the same thing. In a passage we're going to be looking at over the next 30 minutes, Jesus comes and he says, I have come to bring light in the midst of darkness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we wrap up the book of Exodus and we see this beautiful story of redemption, we're excited about what it means to be God's covenant people. We're excited to understand what it means to be God's tabernacle, God's kings, God's priests walking around this earth, bringing the good news. But we have questions. What does that look like? What does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of God? So Heavenly Father, we pray that my words would fall down and that your words would be lifted up. And as we hear about this great and glorious king, we might find ourselves captured with wonder as to what you have done. 
We pray this in Jesus' powerful name, amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Matthew chapter four, Matthew chapter four. If you're watching from home, you might've noticed communion and you can certainly pause the video and join us for that. But we also invite you to open up your Bibles or your phones and the Bible apps. If you're brand new to church, the Bible can be a little bit confusing. At the very beginning, you should find a table of contents, the Old Testament, everything that happened before Jesus, the New Testament, the birth, the life of Jesus and about 60 years following his death. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Um, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers, and a little bit as to what's happening so far. So you open up the book of Matthew, and you get the first couple chapters, the genealogy, the family background of Jesus, how he was born. Only two of the four gospels talk about the birth of Jesus. By the time you hit Matthew 3, we are introduced to Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. He's telling everybody to repent and believe in the good news. He baptizes his cousin Jesus. Jesus immediately goes out into the desert and he, where he's tempted for 40 days and he comes back and he starts his ministry. For those of you who enjoy taking notes, the outline today is a fun one. The king has arrived. This is Matthew chapter four, picking up in verse 12. Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began preach saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. As long as I can remember, I've enjoyed uh, the historical background of what's taking place. It adds so much color. What's happening around the world at this time? And so John the Baptist arrives on the scene and he's um, the prophet, the first prophet that Israel has seen in about 300 years. And he's telling the people of Israel, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so all these people are flocking to John and they say, no one has taught like this man before. Well, when you start getting a gathering of that size, suddenly politicians are a little bit interested. And a man by the name of Herod Antipas, the son of King Herod the Great, says, I want to meet this John. But what Herod Antipas doesn't understand is that John isn't afraid of telling him the truth. And so John shows up in front of Herod and he looks at him and he says, hey, you can't sleep with your brother's wife. That's not okay. And Herod says, you can't talk to me like that and throws him into prison. And there's a prophetic void in all of Israel. Now, the Gospel of Matthew um, says from that point on, Jesus went from Nazareth to Capernaum. But it's not like Jesus just completely went on his own free will. He was kind of kicked out of Nazareth. We find out in the Gospel of Luke, we talked about this last January, I believe, picking up in Luke chapter 4. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, behold, the king has arrived. These are the people that he grew up with. These are the people like, Jesus, we know your mom. 
We know your dad. You are not the king of Israel. And they are angry. We read, jumping down to verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of town. So in these first couple of verses, we have a couple of things that are going on. First, John the Baptist is now in prison. Second, Jesus is kicked out of Nazareth. And third, there's a prophetic hole that needs to be filled. At the beginning of the service, we read the beautiful passage from Isaiah chapter nine. We often read it at Christmas time. You might be familiar with it. For unto us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The beginning of Isaiah chapter nine is the passage of Matthew chapter four. And Isaiah is writing to the people who live in Northern Israel saying, the time has come. The light has arrived in darkness. The reason Isaiah wrote these words to the Jews is because they were going through an incredibly difficult time. The Northern kingdom, Israel, the Southern kingdom, Judah, are not listening to God at this time. And the people of Israel think, we are God's chosen people. There is no way that God is going to kick us out of this land. We can do whatever we want. And so God sends prophet after prophet after prophet saying to the nation of Israel, you have to turn back to God or else bad things are coming. And they say, no, 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 that will never happen to us. We are God's chosen people. If you look at this picture, it's the, the nation of Israel and we see the northern tribe of Naphtali at the top, just above the Sea of Galilee. They're the northernmost tip of Israel. Above them is the great superpower, Assyria. And Assyria comes in and swipes them out and they are hit the hardest. They are the first ones taken into captivity. But then when we go to the map of the first century, when Jesus arrives and begins his ministry, he says, I have come. And I am going to bring light where it was the darkest. I am going to bring a beacon of hope where you were hit the hardest. But when he arrives, he says these powerful words, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. If you have your Bibles in front of you, you can see Matthew 4, 17. But if you flip back to um, Matthew 3, verse 2, you'll notice John the Baptist saying the exact same thing. And we're not talking similar. We're talking word for word, verbatim, identical. When John is saying these words, he's linking to the Old Testament and he's pointing ahead saying, the Messiah is coming. When Jesus says these words, he says, I'm the fulfillment of everything you've read about in the Old Testament. But then we start thinking, well, what does that mean? When we hear about the kingdom of God, we think, is it okay to ask what it is? Because we don't really know. But we see the kingdom of God when we have English as a second language and the people of Ellerslie serving brand new Canadians. We hear about the kingdom of God when a preacher stands up and proclaims the good news of Jesus. We are part of the kingdom of God when we partake in communion and remember what God has done for us. We see the kingdom of God when we have Alpha and we tell people all about who Jesus is. When we have Freedom Session, we see people overcoming difficulties in our life. We hear about the kingdom of God. In two weeks, we're gonna have probably a dozen baptisms in that tank. It is going to be awesome and get ready to cheer. It's gonna be great. We are part of the kingdom of God, when we serve, when we invite people into our homes and we show them this is what the kingdom of God looks like. It's not that just that Jesus came and said, I am proclaiming the kingdom of God. This is the very purpose of his ministry. I would like nothing more than to give you a definition. This is what the kingdom of God is. 
but Jesus had plenty of opportunities to do it and he never took them. He said things like, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And although it's the smallest of the seeds when it's planted, it grows into this beautiful tree. The kingdom of God is like a treasure that is worth more than anything you could possibly own by yourselves. The kingdom of God is like a net and when you cast it out, it brings people in. The kingdom of God is like leaven that when you bake something, it goes out throughout the entire dough. So what do we say about the kingdom? Jesus himself says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never fully enter it. To enter the kingdom of God means to place yourself under the rule of God. To enter the kingdom of God means you place yourself under the rule of God. I pray with my kids every night that we would know you, love you, and serve you as our king. And Israel is thinking, man, when it comes to Isaiah chapter nine, that's the king that we want. We like a king who's a mighty counselor, a, a, wonder, a, a mighty God, a wonderful counselor, an everlasting father. That king is awesome. The Israelites are also familiar with Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant passages that say things like, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. And the Israelites know that both of these chapters exist. They just have no idea that it's the same king. But our king comes twice. The first time Jesus arrives, it looks like weakness to many, but what seems foolish to man is the wisdom of God. Our sins demand a payment and that payment is blood. And so Jesus gives us an opportunity. He gives everybody an opportunity. You can choose. Either you can say, I'm not your king, and that's fine, but you'll have to pay the penalty with your own blood. Or you can say, Jesus is the king, and I will pay that penalty for you. But the thing is, our king is coming back a second time. He's coming back in round two with angels blowing their trumpets, with Jesus arriving on the clouds, with eyes like a flaming torch, with a face like a beaconing sun, saying, I am the king. And the world rejoices. The king has arrived. What kind of king is he? He's the king of your heart. Picking up in verse 18. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left their boats and their father and followed him. Now, this passage is popular among preachers, and you can see why, as followers of Jesus, we are called to make Jesus our king, and that nothing else would sit on that throne that's most important to us. And we're excited about this. We stand up, and we're passionate, and we'll tell stories but did you know this isn't the first time Jesus is interacting with these four young men? So picture it like this. You're working, you're building a home and uh, some random guy shows up and he says, hey, put your um, tool belt down. Come follow me. We're gonna build the kingdom. And you'd probably look at your supervisor and be like, close the construction gate. Who's this weirdo in here? But if Pastor Joel showed up and said, hey, put your hammer down. Come follow me. We're gonna build the kingdom of God together. You might think, I like Joel. 
I think there's some potential here. And these four fishermen have already familiar with who Jesus is. They've already met him. They've already talked to him. In John chapter one, John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And two of his disciples, Simon and Andrew, say, if, if he's the king, we should follow him. Picking up in John chapter one, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ, the Savior. And he took him to see Jesus. These four disciples, these four fishermen already have a pre-existing relationship and they know who Jesus is. And because they know it, they feel like it is absolutely worth it to follow him. Not only has the king arrived, he is the king of your heart. When I put this outline together, the reason I chose the word heart is because it's symbolic of your passions, your hopes, your dreams. These four men are making a huge sacrifice. They're walking away from their livelihood. They're walking away from their family. They're walking away from their boat and their future. Why would they do all that? Because they recognize worshiping anything other than God will eat you alive. If you worship money, you will never have enough of it. You'll just kill yourself trying to keep up with your neighbors. I'll have to have nicer cars. I have to have nicer homes. I have to have nicer vacations. If you worship beauty, you'll have a life of suffering. Even if you were the hottest thing in your 20s and your 30s, eventually it doesn't matter how much you diet and exercise. You're just not going to look like the next new supermodel. If you worship sex, you're going to be lonely. Before I became a pastor, I worked in a restaurant and the guys would brag about how many girls they've slept with. And I felt like saying, so what on your deathbed, you're gonna have 15 girls all caring for you and making you feel better? Kind of doubt they're gonna show up. Worshiping power will leave you weak and afraid because you're always looking over your shoulder. Is somebody gonna take it? Worshiping intellect will make you feel dumb because eventually someone's going to be smarter than you. Worshiping family and friends will leave you disappointed because it never ends the way you want. I love stand-up comedy. I heard one comedian say, man, isn't it terrible that 50% of marriages end in divorce? He goes, 100% of marriages that don't end in divorce end in death. That would be way worse. <laughs> Everything's gonna disappoint you. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus says, I will forgive you for your sins whenever you fall short. I will welcome you back with wide open arms. I will be here whenever you want to talk to me. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you for all of eternity. Worship me because I am the king of your heart. Everything else in this world ends up disappointing us. But there's this beautiful verse in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. When Jesus grabs these four fishermen, he says, follow me. He wants to take us somewhere. He doesn't want you to commit to following Jesus and then say, oh, just go home now and watch Netflix because that new show looks really great. God wants something for you. Not only does God send, them, um, send back Jesus to the region of Zebulun and Naphtali to bring light, but he, there's this beautiful symmetry with the fishermen as well. In Jeremiah 16, 16, we have this throwaway line that you may have read and thought nothing of. But now I, God, will send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. After that, I will send for many hunters and they will um, hunt them down on every mountain and hill from every crevice of the rocks. It seems random, but God is putting back together everything that's been undone. When people are going out into exile, he says to the fishermen and hunters, gather them for the exile. And when he comes back, he says, bring them back and tell them their king has arrived. 
What is God asking you to do? Over the last few weeks, we haven't had a whole lot of application in our messages, just a lot of implication, things to think about, things to hopefully make you go, wow. And two weeks ago, when the Israelites were standing at um, the bottom of Mount Sinai, Moses shows up and he says, I want you to make a covenant with you. Remember how great God is. Remember how he rescued you from Egypt. Remember how he provided for you daily. Remember what it means. And now he wants a relationship with you. And the big idea was embrace the joy of being covenant people. And last week we talked about the tabernacle and we looked at 15 chapters at the end of Exodus and we talked about what it means to be a tabernacle and what that looks like. And so the big idea last week was we are God's tabernacle. We are God's um, presence dwelling in this world. And here we are, Christmas in the kingdom. And Jesus shows up and he says, I am bringing light into a dark place. I am bringing this expansion into the kingdom. And once again, it's more of an implication than an application. While this isn't in the text, I think we can look at these three ideas over the last three weeks and go, what does it mean for me? From September till mid-February, we have this big idea, one of our values as a church of inescapable mission. And over the month of September, we talked every single week and we got really applicable and said, who are you going to invite into your house? Who are you going to go out for coffee with? Which one of your coworkers, your classmates, your neighbors are you going to get to know on a deeper level? And I actually said, break out your phones and write it down. It's December. Have you done it yet? Have you got to know who your neighbors are? Do you know them more than by name? Do you know anything about them? Do your coworkers know that you care for them? That you want the best for them? And during this Christmas season, can you invite them out for coffee? Can you invite them to your house for Christmas Eve? If they have young kids like my family does, can you invite them to Christmas Wonderland, to the primetime banquet, to the youth banquet? What can we do to be a part of God expanding the kingdom? The king has arrived. Not only is he the king of your heart, but he's also the king of the world and everything in it. Verses 23 and following. Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Can someone get me a Kleenex? I'm really sorry. Jenna, can you grab me a Kleenex, please? It's so emotional. I'm sorry. He went throughout all Galilee. This is my wife. I'm not just randomly picking anybody. He went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and everything and healing diseases and every affliction among the people. So his fame went and spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem, Judea and from beyond the Jordan. When the world, when the king of the world arrives, people take notice. Galilee could fit perfectly between South Edmonton and Red Deer. It's about 100 kilometers long, about 50 kilometers wide. It's not a small province by any stretch. There's about 300,000 people, 200 cities, and these uh, 200 towns. These few verses show us that Jesus is an itinerant preacher. He's going from place to place, telling them about who he is, about the kingdom of God and what it means. And people are fascinated by what's taking place. 
And we see that it's not just the people in Galilee that are coming, but it's the people who are non-Jewish as well. A Gentile is anybody who's not a Jew. And the Gentiles are showing up from the Decapolis, the major 10 cities. They're coming down from Syria, the nation that once attacked Israel. And people are saying, we wanna hear more. Tell us about the kingdom of God. It sounds amazing. And this is his message throughout the entire gospel. At the very end of Matthew, we read these famous words commonly referred to as the Great Commission. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then again, right before he ascends into heaven, he looks at these same disciples again and gives them this commission one more time. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Taylor, please mute my mic. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Well done, Taylor. In all Judea and Samaria until the ends of the earth. This is the teaching that brings God's kingdom into the world. But first people need to believe this good news. It's not just that he's the king of the world, he's the king of everything in it. To be Christians means, to be, um, means we are little Christ. We are God's ambassadors in the world. We are his image. We are the priests that take the good news of Jesus and share it with everybody around us. There's three massive ideas in this passage. He went through all Galilee teaching in the synagogues proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Looking at these ideas in order, and we can talk about all the teaching Jesus does, but what the, um, the people following Jesus do, the, the apostles, is they basically comment on what he's already doing. And if you're thinking, you know, I'd love to memorize a passage of scripture, Colossians chapter three is amazing. And people say, well, how do we operate at work, at home, and at play? And the Apostle Paul who wrote Colossians says, I'll tell you exactly what to do. Slaves, employees, obey your earthly masters in everything you do, not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. But he doesn't let bosses off the hook either. He says, if you're a boss, master, provide your slaves, your employees, with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, well, that's great. What am I supposed to do at home? What does that look like? Wives, submit to your husbands. It's fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, Beckham, Hawksley, obey your parents. It's right there. It's in the Bible. <laughs> Fathers, Sorry, kids, do not embitter your children. What if we're just hanging out? What if we're on hobbies? What if we're playing sports? What if we're at a book club? What if we're out for coffee with our friends? As God's chosen people, this passage is beautiful, holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other, forgiving whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. This is the teaching that brings God's kingdom into the world. But first, people need to believe the good news. And that's where the proclamation comes in. This is chapter four, verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death, the light has dawned. 
But do you see this ray of hope? The king has arrived. He's the king of your heart and he's the king of the whole world. When we read in verse 23 that he was proclaiming the gospel, it means that this good news is important. And every time the news is used, every time the word gospel is used, it's the announcement of a brand new king. What is vital for us to understand is that when Jesus arrives, he brings good news. He doesn't bring advice. He brings good news. Every other religion gives you advice. Do these five things, you'll get into heaven. Obey this way, you'll get into heaven. Give this much money, you'll get into heaven. Do these things for people around you, you'll get into heaven. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's already done. I come proclaiming to you the good news of the gospel. I have done the work for you. There's this beautiful story. Some people think it's legend. I think it's true. In the 1960s, 1970s, a group of English professors were gathered together in the local pub. And they were talking and they said, what's the difference between each of the religions? And in walks the man who's the English and philosophy professor at the school. And they say, Clive will know. Clive, what's the difference between the world religions and Christianity if there isn't at all? And he pauses for a moment and he says, that's easy. Christianity, it's already been done. Every other religion, this is what you have to do. In a word, grace. That man is Clive Staples Lewis. He's written the Chronicles of Narnia and some other great books as well. Teaching, proclaiming the good news and healing. Not only is Jesus the king of the world, he's the king of everything in it. Take another look at verse 24. His fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. The kingdom of God is holistic. God shows up in the person of Jesus Christ and he says, yes, salvation is the most important thing, but the kingdom of heaven starts now. I care about your relationships. I care about your work and I care about your physical and emotional health. One of my good, good friends fell into a dark, deep awful depression. God brought him back up. One of the people in our church had a significant surgery two weeks ago and people came and prayed for this individual and almost the next day they were walking again. Borderline miraculous healing. We don't know why God chooses to heal some and not to bring immediate healing to others, but we do know complete healing is on the other side of the grave. One of my favorite verses, Revelation 21, four, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. First Corinthians 15, we're reminded we are given a brand new body. I'm gonna invite the band to come join me on the, on the stage the only way we can receive this healing is because Jesus was wounded for us. The only way we can belong to this family is because Jesus adopted us. The only way we can come to this banquet table is because the king has invited us. Christmas in the kingdom. Over the next few days and over the next couple of weeks, we'll slowly add a little bit more to the stage and out into the foyer as well. But what we wanted you to see, what we wanted you to have a picture of is this idea that God is inviting you into his home. He's inviting you into his living room. He's inviting you to the banquet table. And all other religions say, this is what you must do. And God shows up and says, no, no, no. It is already done. 
2,000 years ago, the idea of the Last Supper was instituted. 2,000 years later, we're still practicing it, remembering what God has done. We don't worship a king that says, do this, do that, or else you cannot stay in my kingdom. We worship a king who says, I've already done all the work for you. Please come, join me in the kingdom.